Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18 and 19 say, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spots. Let's look at the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you this day for your word. We thank you, Father God, for the provision of this book this divinely inspired revelation from God that was given unto us, Father God, to reveal your character to us, to reveal your will to us, and Father God, to help us in our daily lives. And we thank you for your word. This morning, as we open up the word of God again, we do pray that, Lord, you would help us to glean from it the insights that you would have us to glean. Father, the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and apply it to our hearts and lives. And to that end, would you take me, Father God, as your servant? Allow me to have clarity of thought and allow me to have simplicity of speech and allow me to share your Word clearly in such a way that, Father, we might understand it. We might leave this day singing your praise and saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Speak to us now, we pray through your Word. We'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. In the section of 1 Peter chapter 1 that Samuel read for us this morning, verses 13 to 19, Peter challenges believers to walk in hope. In fact, you've got to go back to verse 12, uh, verses 1 through 12 to get the context of verses 13 and following. And in verses 1 through 12, the challenge has been for us to walk in hope. And he picks up that theme uh, in those verses that you and I might understand what the responsibility for us is in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Wherefore, good at your loins of your mind, be sober and hope the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here is this teaching on hope. And verses 1 through 12 have all been about, about, about that hope about the hope we have in Jesus Christ and how you and I are to respond to that hope. And now he says to you and I that as believers, we ought to be followers of him. We ought to imitate him in holiness and righteousness. Look in verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he hath called you, is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation, because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. Because of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, because of what he's done for us, you and I are challenged to live holy and righteous lives because the two go together. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, John says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself as he is pure. The hope that we have of eternal life, the hope one day Jesus Christ is coming again to take us home to glory, that hope, the hope that Jesus is coming again and that you and I, because we're saved, have that hope. Because of that hope, we ought to live a certain way. Pastor Kendall touched on that this morning in his sermon, that we are to, uh, by, because of the hope that we have, purify ourselves, even as he is pure. 
Notice Peter picks up this theme in verses 13 and 19. He calls upon us to show ourselves to be obedient to the gospel. He calls upon us as children to, to honor, obey, and imitate our Father. Just as children are called upon in the Word of God to obey and imitate their parents, you and I as the children of God are called upon to honor and obey God. 14 again, as obedient children, not fashion yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. We're not to fashion ourselves. The word not fashioning is the same phrase as used in Romans 12.1, and be not conformed to this world. It's the same phraseology, the same idea. Be not fashioned according to the lust of this world. Be not conformed to this world. For to be conformed or to be fashioned to the world is to be fashioned to its lusts. And to be fashioned to its lusts is to indulge in them, to make provision for them, to obey them, to live and walk in them, which should not be done by the children of God. In fact, verse 15 tells us we are to be holy in all manner of conversation. Verse 16 tells us we're to be holy as he is holy. And this is not just a desire of God for you and I, but this is a command of God for you and I. We're commanded to be holy as he is holy. We're commanded not to fashion ourselves according to the lusts of this world. It's a command. Peter calls upon you and I to stay clean in a polluted world. And to that end, Peter gives to us an argument for a whole life. Why should we live holy? Well, verses 18 and 19 tell us why. Notice how he starts verse 18. He says, For as much as ye know. For as much as you know. Some things that you know. And what I'm going to tell you this morning are not anything that you don't already know. These things we already know. And because we know these things to be true, we ought to live holy lives. Because we know these things to be true, we ought to fashion ourselves not after the lust of this world, but according to the will of God. Because these things are true, you and I are to live a certain way, for as much as you know. And then he proceeds to tell us about our redemption. You see, our redemption ought to motivate you and I to holy living. Somebody say there is no more effectual way to induce true Christians to consecrate themselves entirely to God than to refer them to the fact that they are not their own, but have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Here is the motivation for holy living. We have been redeemed by God. Why should we be holy as he is holy? Because of our redemption. Why should we not desire the lust of this world? Because of redemption. Why should we be uh, imitators of God? Because of redemption. So note with me how our redemption motivates us to holy living today. First of all, notice we're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Verse 18, for as much you know, you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. We're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. The word redeemed here in 1 Peter chapter 1 is used only other, two other times in the New Testament. It's found in Luke chapter 24 and verse 21 and Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. And the third occurrence right here in 1 Peter Chapter 1 and verse 18. And the word redeemed simply means that we were rescued from sin by the death and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And verse 19 tells us that. 
that you and I are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spots. We are redeemed by the payment of a price. That price was the blood of Jesus Christ. And you and I have been redeemed by the shed blood of his son. That is the blood of Christ has replaced the need for you and I to pay for our sin with eternal death. Romans 6.23 tells the wage of sin is death. The consequence of our sin is eternal damnation, eternal separation from God. But the blood of Jesus Christ paid the redemption price so that you and I can be redeemed. God was well pleased to accept Christ's sacrifice in the place of the punishment that you and I deserved as sinners. Now there was no obstacle. Now there, there was no obstacle to salvation, and you and I can be taken to heaven. I said I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. That's the reality of this verse. It says we were redeemed not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. You know, and understand that silver and gold usually constitute the price paid for the redemption of captives of slaves. It was that which was paid at the slave market in order for a slave to be set free or a slave to be purchased and made part of a household. And the word redeemed is to us a theological term. You know, when I use the word redeemed or redemption, the first thing we think about is salvation. We think about a theological term. It's a word that uh, theologically means something to you and I. You know, in the first century, when Peter's writing this, in the first century, it had a special meaning to people in the Roman Empire, different than it means to you and I. You see, there were probably some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at this time. 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And many of those slaves came to know Christ as their saviour. They'd been redeemed. And they joined fellowship to many local churches throughout the Roman Empire. And so when you went to church on Sunday, you would find those who were written in exile to their slaves who had been saved. And when the word redemption was mentioned to a first century Christian, particularly a slave, it meant something that doesn't mean to you and I. Or it has a far greater meaning than it meant to you and I. You see, because a slave could be purchased, or rather a slave could purchase his own freedom if he could raise enough funds. Or his master could send someone who would set him free by the payment of the redemption price. Freedom, redemption, was a precious thing in the first century. If you were a free slave, it meant something. If you had been redeemed, if you had somebody come along and had purchased you and set you free, if you were a redeemed slave, it was pretty special to be set free. Redemption was a special thing to them. And that reminds us that you and I must never forget how special our redemption is. You know, you and I have been redeemed from sin, from the slavery of sin. 
And as much as the first century slave understood what redemption meant and how significant it was for them to be purchased and set free, it is even more significant that you and I have been redeemed from death and hell and sin. That you and I have been redeemed. We must never forget it. Go with me to Titus 3.3, 3, please. Titus 3.3. 3. It says, For we ourselves also are sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the, renewing, by, the, uh, by the washing regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. This was us. After the kindness and love of God, our Savior to all men appeared, you and I were redeemed. And for us, this should cause you and I to appreciate our redemption the more. As you and I meditate upon what it was we were saved from, you and I ought to appreciate our redemption. You know, if you're a first century slave and you'd been set free, if you'd been given your bill of freedom and you could pre prove that you're a free slave, you've been set free, it was something special. Now you could work and earn your own money and it was yours. You didn't have to give it to your master. There was nobody telling you what you could and couldn't do. Day, every, day in and day out, you were free. And I'm sure a free slave in the first century, as they meditate upon what had happened that day they'd been set free, once again rejoiced in their freedom day by day. Beloved, as you and I meditate upon what we've been saved from, it ought to cause you and I to rejoice in our redemption. You know, Moses urged Israel to remember that they've been slaves in Egypt. Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And verse 15. It remember that thou wast the servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. In chapter 16 and verse 12 of uh, Deuteronomy. Chapter 16. And verse 12. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondsman in Egypt, and thou shalt serve and do these statutes. We could also read chapter 24, verses 18 and 22. And you read the same thing over and over again. Moses seeks to remind the children of Israel to remember they had been slaves in Egypt. The generation that died in the wilderness, those who died in that 40 years in the wilderness, waiting for entrance into the promised land, forgot the bondage of Egypt. Remember that? Remember when they got out of Egypt, they hadn't been long out of Egypt, and it says that they desired all the things of Egypt, the leeks and the garlics and the cucumbers of Egypt. They remembered the good things of Egypt. They didn't remember the bad things of Egypt. They forgot the slavery. They forgot the beatings. They forgot the hard work. They forgot what it was to be a slave. All they could remember was the good things of Egypt. And Moses sought to remind the children of Israel to remember their bondage. 
Remember what they've been saved from. Because the generation that had died in the wilderness had always sought to go back. That was their problem. They kept wanting to go back, looking back, seeking to go back to Egypt rather than looking forward to the promised land. And we too must remember the bondage that sin brings. We must remember the price of our redemption. It's far greater than any price paid in the slave market. One commentator said this, it is clear that the obligation of, one, of the one who is redeemed is to love his benefactor in proportion to the price which is paid for his redemption. There's a proportionate obligation upon the person who is redeemed to the person who redeemed them. The idea here is that the price, a price far more valuable than any amount of silver and gold paid for our redemption now we're under a proportionate obligation to devote ourselves to service of God. We were redeemed by the, by the Son of God offered on our behalf. And between the value of that blood and the silver and gold of purchase price redemption, there could be no comparison. The price that was paid for our redemption was far greater than any price paid for any slave in history. And if a slave is under a proportionate obligation of the one who redeemed them, then you and I are under obligation of Almighty God to serve Him. Our obligation is far greater because our redemption price was far greater. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 20. We're not our own, for we're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What? No, you're not. You're bought with a price, he says. You're not your own. You're bought for, uh, uh, therefore, we're to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are God's. Because we've been redeemed, bought with a price, we should live for him. We should be holy as he is holy. We ought to be imitators of him. For we're bought with price. Secondly, we're redeemed. From a vain conversation. Not only we redeemed, our redemption price is far greater than silver and gold. Secondly, we redeemed from our vain conversation. Verse 18. For as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. You know, we're not just redeemed from sin, but we're redeemed from vain conversation received by tradition from our fathers. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 15, it says this, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, the same word. We've been redeemed from a vain conversation to a holy conversation. The meaning is that since God is holy, and you and I profess to be followers of God, then we too ought to be holy. Our conversation, our manner of life ought to reflect our redeemed position. Just as the unsaved reflect their position, they reflect the character of their father, they imitate their father, their conversation, their manner of life demonstrates that they're children of 
the devil, so too God's children ought to have a manner of life, a conversation that demonstrates that we are children of a holy God, that we are holy as he is holy. Because we've been redeemed from our vain conversation. The word vain, when applied to conduct, means empty or fruitless. See, not only did you and I get saved, or not only were you and I redeemed from slavery to sin, but you and I have been redeemed from a life of emptiness. He describes this more fully in 1 Peter chapter 4. Go with me there, please. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, I am likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of all our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excessive, uh, excessive wine, revelings, banqueting, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excessive riot, speaking evil of you. He tells us here that Christ has saved us. He suffered in the flesh that we might be of the same mind as him, in verse 1. For he suffered in the flesh so that you and I might cease from sin and we should no longer live in the rest of time in the flesh but in the will of God for what we were in the past. Our vain conversation has now gone. We've been redeemed from that vain conversation to a relationship with Almighty God and our conversation, our manner of life now ought to reflect that relationship. Now at the time of the writing of this, these people thought their lives were full and happy when they were really empty and miserable. It's true, you know, unsaved people are blindly living on substitutes. The unsaved in general think their lives are full and have meaning even though it's emptiness, it's vain. They're living on substitutes. You know, in order for the world to get excited and, and have a, a good life, many have to revert to drugs or to alcohol or to entertainment or some false stimulant, external stimulant, to make their lives have purpose and meaning. But God says you and I have been delivered from that vain conversation and you and I have been redeemed to a brand new relationship with our Heavenly Father, and you and I now have purpose and meaning and hope. We have the hope spoken of in verses 1 to 13 because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. We have an eternal hope. One day you and I are going to spend eternity in glory with our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, and we're going to be there for all of eternity, rejoicing and free from sin, free from harm, free from illness and free from disease and you and I are going to live an eternal life of joy and happiness because of our relationship with Jesus Christ and you and I no longer have vain existences. We have hope. And because we have hope, we've been redeemed from a vain conversation to a new and glorious way and we ought to have an exciting life even on earth because of relationship to God. Our redemption ought to produce in us a response 
The death of Christ should move you and I to walk away from our vain conversation. Our redemption should provoke in us, in us to lives that are fruitful and God-honoring. Our hearts ought to be stirred with love and we ought to, uh, ought to provoke, uh, they, our hearts ought to be provoked to live for him because of his love for us. This word vain here in verse 18 is a word often applied to the worship of idols as being nothing worthless and unable to help. Go back to Acts 14, please. Acts 14 and verse 15. Acts 14 and 15. And the saints, sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Turn away from these vanities, turn away from these idols to the true and living God. The Apostle Paul refers to the former worship of idols and to all the abomination connected with that service and that worship of idols as being vain, unprofitable, as the worship of nothing real. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. An idol is nothing in the world. And the worship of idols results in a pattern of life that has none of the proper ends of living. It results in a life that is empty and fruitless. And yet you and I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've been delivered from an old way of life to a new and living way. You and I have a new life that's full of hope and it ought to be a fruitful life for the glory of God because we've been redeemed. Our redemption ought to promote in us fruitful living. We have a purpose for living now and it ought to produce in a life that reflects the very character of God. We ought to be holy as he is holy because that's the life that we've been saved to. We've been redeemed. Somebody said, too often we're more interested in the social life than we are in the holy life. The social life than we are in the holy life. This vain conversation was received, it says, by tradition from our fathers. The mode of worship which had been handed down from father to son, from father to son for generations. Now the worship of idols depends on no better reason than that's what my dad did, what my granddad did. No better reason than it's been practiced in ancient times. And therefore, it's kept up until now as the ritual that we go through. And that's truly the case with the unsaved. They may not be idol worshippers, but they are worshipping idols. They may not have little Buddhas in their house that they bow down to, light candles to, and worship every day. But they are worshipping idols. They're serving a God other than the living God. And the reason why it's perpetuated from generation to generation is simply because that's what dad did and granddad did. And so they keep on doing the same things and fulfilling the same pattern of life because it's a vain conversation that's the tradition of their fathers. 
No, you and I as believers don't worship because of tradition received from our fathers. We worship, or we ought to worship, because we love God. We have a different motivation for doing what we're doing. We do what we do because of the God that we serve. We've been redeemed, not with corruptible things, of silver and gold, from our vain conversation. We've been redeemed. And because of that redemption, you and I want to live holy. Yeah, we ought to come to church to worship the Lord because we love him. And if we love him, we will want to attend church often and practice worship often. We ought to get our hearts right and desire to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, which will produce a life that honors the Lord because we love him. We ought to serve him because we love him. We ought to live for him because we love him, not because it's our duty, not because it's passed down to us by tradition from our fathers, but because we love him. Because you and I have been redeemed, not with corruptible things of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Because you and I are redeemed, you and I ought to live for him. We have to live a life that is worthy of our redemption. You and I are not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold, and you and I have been redeemed from a vain conversation, as verse 18 tells us, received by tradition of our fathers. And thirdly, we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Our redemption, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish and without spots. Notice it says, with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. Romans 3.25 says, Who God hath set forth to be propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past in his blood, in his precious blood. You and I have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this was significant and carries a lot more significance in the first century than it probably does today. Because among the Jews, the blood was regarded as the seat of life. Leviticus 17.11, it says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, you and I know that to be so. We live in the 21st century. And we understand that, you know, if you bleed all the blood out of somebody, they die. It's not that long ago, though, that they thought for the circumditions, the way you healed somebody was to bleed them. And often the operation was a success, but the patient died because by removing the blood, the patient died. But the Jews understood from Old Testament Scripture that the life of the flesh was in the blood. So when Peter says, you're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, it carries significance for them as the, the fact of redemption carries significance for all those 60 million uh, slaves, many of them saved. So too when he mentions this, the Jewish people understood the significance of the blood, the life of the flesh was in the blood. And the word precious here in verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, is the word which would be applied to that which is worth much 
much more, which is costly. As blood is important for life, the blood of Jesus Christ is even more important. It is precious blood. It's the means by which you and I are redeemed. The precious blood of Christ. The blood of Christ at a value above silver and gold. Its worth is more. He shed his blood to purchase our redemption. To purchase you and I out of slavery to sin. To set us free forever. You know, I need to remember that the word to redeem means to set free by the paying of a price. And that price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Your slave can be set free by the payment of money. No amount of money can set a lost sinner free. Only the blood of Jesus can redeem us. It accomplished for you and I what silver and gold could never accomplish. I know what he says. He says as, that with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spots. Only a spotless lamb was allowed to be offered in sacrifice for sin. Go to Leviticus 22, please. Leviticus 22 and verse 20. But whatsoever hath a blemish, that shall not, that shall ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. And whosoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or a freewill offering in beeves or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted, and there shall be no blemish therein. Blind or broken or maimed or having a wind, a wind, a scurvy or scabbed, ye shall not offer these unto the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them upon the altar unto the Lord. Neither a bullock or a lamb that hath anything superfluous or lacking in his parts, thou mayest, uh, that mayest thou offer for a free will offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. And so it goes on. You won't offer bruised and crushed and broken or cut. Okay. You won't allow to offer anything that wasn't without blemish. Once again, this is significant. You know, any Jews sitting there reading Peter's letter here would have understood immediately the significance of this statement. They understood that life was in the, the blood but the sacrifice that had to be made, this blood that had to be shed, had to be from a spotless lamb. And Jesus Christ shed his blood. He was that spotless lamb of God. And here we have the doctrine of substitution spelled out for us. An innocent victim giving his life for the guilty. He gave his life. He shed his blood for us. He died in our place that we might be redeemed. Be clear that Christ's death was an appointment, not an accident. For he was ordained of God before the foundation of the world. Acts 2.20 tells us that. But Peter makes it clear here that in verse 20 he says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. Jesus Christ's death upon Calvary was a foreordained destiny. 
God, before the foundation of the world, had predetermined that Jesus Christ would die. Acts 2 and verse 23 says, by the predetermined counsel of God, he died. From the human perspective, our Lord was cruelly murdered. From the divine perspective, he laid down his life for sinners. In John chapter 10, he tells us, I lay down my life thee. No man takes it, but I lay it down. He gave his life. He willingly died upon the cross of Calvary, shed his precious blood for you and I, so the redemption price could be paid, so you and I could be redeemed from our vain conversation, redeemed from our sin, and made children of Almighty God. You and I meditate on the sacrifice of Christ for us. Certainly should motivate you and I to want to obey God. Why should we be holy as he is holy? Why should we be holy in all manner of conversation? Why should we be imitators of our Father? Why should we not fashion ourselves according to the lusts of this world? Why? Because we're redeemed. You and I have been bought with a price. We've been set free, therefore glorify God in your body and spirit which are his. We've been set free, we're redeemed. And because of the redemption price, we ought to live for him. When a young lady by the name of Frances Ridley Havergal saw a picture of the crucified Christ, caption underneath it that said, I did this for thee, what hast thou done for me? Quickly she wrote a poem. But she was dissatisfied with that poem and she threw it in the fireplace. The bit of paper did burn and her father later rescued it from the fire and suggested to her that she publish the poem. And today we sing... I gave my life for thee. My precious blood I shed that thou might ransom me and quicken from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? Beloved, that's a good question indeed. I trust we can give a good answer to the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Father God, for this truth that we're redeemed not with corruptible things and silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish. That we've been redeemed from our vain conversation. So now we might be imitators of our Heavenly Father, that we might not be fashioned according to the former lusts but that we might be holy as you are holy in all manner of conversation. Lord, help us to be motivated daily by our redemption to live for thee. May we answer the question, what hast thou done for me? In a positive way, saying, Lord, I will live for thee. Commend your word to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.